Okay, let's go now to uh, Ruth, chapter 4. And I've asked Susan Nash to come and read verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Welcome, Susan, and thank you for doing this. People of God, listen to the Word of God from Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Thanks be to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for redemption. We have praised you this morning in song, praising you specifically that you have ransomed us from our sin. We praised you specifically this morning for buying us with the price. So, Father, now I pray that these concepts would explode in our hearts and minds to the point that we would want to be bought, (laughs) to the point that we would want to be bought by the Son, and to the point that we would want to be bought by the Son that we might have hope for the future and hope for now. Lord Jesus, only you can take someone like me and bring some good to your people. So I pray that that's precisely what you would do. Father, for the sake of your people and for the glory of Christ and for his fame to be spread and for us to be changed, bless your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I got into a conversation this week with uh, my Uber driver in New York City that um, offered the information that he was both Pakistani and Muslim. And he had been revived in his faith of late. Um, and he, he, he was very anxious to tell me, and um, to, uh, or uh, very interested to tell me about this revival of faith, kind of his come back to Allah moment. 
he told me he was playing cricket. And if you don't know what cricket is, it's just a game. About all I can tell you is it's a game played with a very hard ball. Uh, you do not want to be hit with this ball. And yet he was hit in the face uh, with a cricket ball and um, broke several uh, bones in his face and, and, and almost killed him. But in his words, Allah relented and saved his life. As we got to the airport, he was still uh, just kind of working on me. And he wanted me to see a, um, a video on his iPhone that, um, that really focused on a debate between an Amman, uh, a Muslim leader, if you will, and a Christian theologian. And the, the portion of the debate that he wanted me to see was when the Amman was making the point, or making the point that, that redemption and blood sacrifice, this whole idea that God would kill his own son to redeem his people, um, was offensive and it was really irrational because if you look at any father, um, no one would glorify the action of a father killing his own son and he had a point. And I listened to the debate. I was way early for my flight, so we had a little time. And uh, you know one thing, when you're sitting at the airport in a car, you don't just sit there. Everybody on the planet talking at us, and I thought we were about to get attacked uh, by people around us, but he just wanted to talk. And as I walked away from that, and I thought about it, I, I said, you know, he has a point because the, the, the whole reality that God would kill his son really is offensive. Uh, it's offensive to modern man. It's not palatable. It's a whole lot easier to believe the, the Muslim um, belief that, that what you really, what God wants from us is to clean ourselves, to pray, and to do the best we can in hopes that we've done enough by the end of our lives. And yet as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that sounds more palatable, but it's not a compelling story. As I began to think and talk to him about the sacrifice of Jesus and the redemption, the, the concept of God redeeming a people for himself, I thought, that really is the narrative of every good story. Uh, it's never a, a, a wonderful story that somebody just uh, did good and was recognized and... They were kind of tolerated and brought in. But the story of a lover who lays down his life for the beloved, that is the meta-narrative, if you will. It, it's the single thread that goes through every good story. That's the story that compels us. And if you think about that, nothing true and beautiful that we learn or see or hear in this life originates in this life, but it is divine. It has a divine element. It is from God. And the story of redemption is the story of, of, of society, if you will. It's the most powerful story, the most compelling story in the world, and it always has been. Why? Because it is rooted in heaven. It is indeed the gospel. We are seeing this story. We see it all throughout the Old Testament, obviously in the New Testament. But we are seeing it here in the book of Ruth. And as we come to the end of this series, what is kind of flashing in, in, on a neon sign is this, this word redemption. 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 And so as we close this out, I want us to, to get a little deeper into this whole concept of redemption.
And to really understand redemption and its power, we need to understand, and I've reworded this first point so as it flashes up, they didn't get it wrong. Uh, They're simply printing what I gave them. Uh, But as I was sitting here this morning thinking, you know, I just don't like the way I phrased that first point, I think what we need to hear this morning is that Ruth was bought. I mean, we sing, oh, thank you for ransoming us. You've bought us with a prize. Makes us feel good. Okay, well, let's bring that concept down to where we live. I mean, how many of you women would like to be bought by your husband? Oh, tell me your story. How did y'all get married? Well, he was walking by and he said uh, he was the highest bidder. Uh, that's not very romantic, is it? <laughs> and yet, if you look at verse 10 uh, of chapter 4, that's precisely what we see. Uh, Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, says Boaz. And contemporary people say, what? And you women say, ain't nobody going to buy me. I mean, you know. And there's not a man in here if he has a sense of, uh, if he has any sense at all that would uh, even claim that on his wife. Well, you know you're my property. Woo! You're not going to live very long, at least not in my house. Uh, I assure you that. That's not going to go over very well. Don't ever pull that card. And so we need to do some work here. We really need to to think about this because the, the reality is it's only when we understand that we have been bought and we need to be bought that we're any good to God or anybody else. And, and, and let me put it another way. You and I need to be bought so that the city can rejoice. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, what's happening here is, is Boaz is a kinsman redeemer who um, redeems Ruth. And he does so by buying the land, by paying a price, and she's kind of thrown in with the land. And if you think about that, you've got to know that the reason it's repulsive maybe to us, or the reason that that we want to push back on us, is because of a false perception, and that is that, that she was free before she was bought. But this whole idea of freedom as, as created human beings does not really exist. I mean, we are all enslaved to something. Something owns us. As surely as Pharaoh owned the Israelites, that he enslaved them as his property for 400 years, you and I are enslaved to the same degree. That is why you can't stop working. It's why you can't find rest. It's why the whole idea of Sabbath is alien to you. Because you are constantly striving for more. You're constantly working. Even when you're sleeping, you're not really sleeping. Because you're always churning. You want beauty. You want talent. You want more intellect. You want to achieve your goals. You want to be best in your field. Or you don't want to fail. So you're always working under the master of failure. I can't fail. I can't fail. I don't necessarily have to succeed, but I don't want to fail. I mean, whatever it is, if we're chasing beauty, if we're chasing money, if we're chasing success, even if we're chasing goodness, even if we're trying to to be humble, well, that's called religion, and it will wear you out. And that's not the gospel. You see, we are all enslaved to something, and Ruth was enslaved to a whole bunch of things. 
She was a slave of her own poverty. She was marginalized racially. She, there's a whole host. She, she lost her husband. She needs to be bought by something other than these things. And so it was good to be bought by Boaz. The women of the city are rejoicing. Why? Because this is blessing. Because Boaz is a man who strategically takes his resources and funnels them in a way toward Ruth that blesses her. And see, that's the kind of lover we all want and need. That's the kind of master we want who has our good as his highest aim. And that's Boaz. So Ruth is bought. And dear friends, you and I need to be bought too. This is the concept of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 22 through 23. Paul says this, For he who was called in the Lord while he was a slave is the Lord's free man. See, a slave always has the identity of a slave, but then he's freed. Then the opposite. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You see those concepts? One who sees himself in bondage needs to see that, hey, I'm freed to the authority of a good master. One who sees himself as free and accountable to no one needs to understand that, yes, I need to be uh, under the master Jesus, under the Lord. I need him because that's where freedom is. It's following him. It's not doing what I want and what I desire. So we are all slaves who need to be redeemed. We need to be bought back to the freedom of a good and benevolent owner and master. And if you don't understand that this morning, then you have not figured out the power of the gospel narrative. If you don't, if your identity is not, I've been bought by a price, I am not my own, but I am Christ Jesus, I'm His possession. He possesses me, He owns me, He can tell me what to do, He can tell me how to think, He can tell me where to go, He can tell me who to love, He can tell me who to forgive, He can tell me what to do with my profession, He can tell me where to go to school, not go to school, who to date, who not to date, what to do with my body, what not to do with my body. He is my master, He is my Lord, He owns me. If you don't get that, then you don't understand the gospel and you don't understand Christianity. But it is a beautiful concept. I saw it again this week. Uh, I had the blessing of, of, and just, well, it, it was truly a blessing. I got to go see Les Mis in New York this week, and I went alone. And I stood in line forever for discount tickets and thought there was no way I was going to even get my toe in the door. Uh, with how far back I was in the line, but God blessed me with second row center seats uh, to Les Mis. Uh, it's an amazing cast. If you don't know the story of Les Mis, it, it's beautiful. Uh, Jean Valjean is, was a prisoner. He stole a little bread because he was starving, and he was in prison for 19 years. Uh, they branded a, a number across his chest, you know, and, and identified him as a prisoner and treated him as a, as a criminal and, and, and every day just belittled him to make him feel as bad as he possibly could feel. He was not really a criminal going in, but by the time he got out, he was because his identity day in and day out was to be told that he was nothing but a lawbreaker, nothing but a lawbreaker. And Javert, the the guard, the relentless guard who represented the law, had no mercy, no grace at all. And so when John Valjean gets out of prison, he has nowhere to go. And, and so he wanders the street and he's rejected. Everyone closes the door on him except a priest. 
And, and the priest welcomes him in and gives him dinner and, 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 and loves on him, calls him brother. And it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. And yet as soon as the priest and the nuns go to sleep, Jean Valjean takes the, the silver uh, goblets and plates and sticks them in his bag and he runs out the door and the townspeople see him and assume that he has ripped off the priest and they catch him and they throw him to the ground and they call the police and it's this mob riot scene in the city as, as they uh, pull out the, you know, the silver goblets out of his uh, bag and the priest comes out. And he says, oh, no, 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 there, there, there's a misunderstanding. And he says, hold on, police. And he runs in and he, he comes out with two silver candlesticks and he, he, he hands them down to uh, Jean Valjean, who has been thrown to the ground. And he said, my friend, you have forgotten these. How, how kind you are. You didn't even take all the gifts that I gave you. And then the crowd disperses and the police leave and Jean Valjean is, is lying there on stage and this is the song that he sings. And no, I'm not going to sing it, so feel good about yourself. <laughs> this is what he sings. Sweet Jesus, what have I done? It's beautiful. I've become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. And have I fallen so far and is the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate? The cries in the dark that nobody hears. Here where I stand at the turning of the years. Is there another way to go? Oh, I missed it 20 years ago. My life was a war that could never be won. They gave me a number and murdered Valjean. When they chained me and left me for dead. Just for stealing a mouthful of bread. Why did I allow this man, talking about the priest, why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life, he claims, for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate this world, this world that always hated me. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. But instead, He offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does He know? What spirit came to move my life? Is there another way to go? I'm reaching, but I fall. And, and the night is closing in as I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from that world, the world of sin. From the world of Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. And you see, grace, the grace of a priest has changed him. He gets up and his life from that point forward is radically different. He becomes a benevolent man. He takes in a woman who um, was so poor and destitute because she had a daughter that she was prostituting herself. And he did the same for her that the priest did for him. He said, no, 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 this is, this is a misunderstanding when she was being arrested. And he brought her in. And as she dies later, she, he promises to take care of her daughter. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. In essence, it's a scene of conversion. And what we see in Les Mis is this overwhelming story of redemption. And the story is this. Those who are redeemed become redeemers. 
And do you see the women are rejoicing? Oh, we're so excited. We're excited for Naomi. But why? They don't say they're excited for Ruth. Why are they excited for Naomi? Well, we're going to get to the the meat of it here in a minute, but here is a major, major theme. They're excited for Naomi because Ruth has been redeemed through her son Obed, and she knows, the, the, the townspeople know, that because Ruth is so in touch with the reality that she was poor, but now she's rich. She was marginalized, but now she's celebrated. She was vulnerable, but now she's secure. She had no hope, and now the future looks bright. Because she has been redeemed, because she has been bought, because she has been brought in by a benevolent lover, that now she's going to raise a son who will be kind to Naomi and who will love on Naomi. You see, the city should rejoice when we profess to being redeemed. That's what Proverbs says, Proverbs 11.10, when it goes well with the righteous, and that's redeemed, the city rejoices. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. Why? Because a people that know they've been redeemed become redeemers. And I want you to know this whole concept really drove me and my desire to see this church planted. Because I was haunted, even from Colorado, haunted by the fact that the poorest city in the country could be one of the most church cities in the country. My heart was bleeding for this city, and it was not for us to become more socially active, but it was for us to understand the gospel. It's a gospel issue. We are not acting like a redeemed people because the redeemed have not become redeemers. And so, dear friends, there's nothing more powerful than for you to come under the Lordship of Jesus and say, I want you to buy me. I want to be your property because I know that the price is the blood of your own Son, Jesus. And then I can come into love. Then I can come into grace. Then I can come into the beauty of the life of Christ. It was Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Do you want to know how to become Christ-like? Fall in love with Him as the one who has genuinely redeemed you. Sin owns you. Death owns you. But Jesus paid the price, and He has now bought you, and now life owns you, forgiveness owns you, righteousness owns you. And it's all of grace. All that must be done is is to be received and believed. And then secondly, I want us to see that it was a son that was Ruth and Naomi's Redeemer. Dear friends, we need to be redeemed by a son. This is tricky. Dare I bring up the issue of gender? This is touchy because, I mean, you know, you bring up gender in this day and time and somebody's going to be mad at me. There's no doubt about it, but let's walk through this. Because 
most women, and, and, and um, I actually used, my primary resource uh, for this book was written by a woman, and uh, she brings this up at the end of her book. She talks about, um, or brings up this whole reality that, that, you know, Ruth and Naomi, you know, finally there's a book in the Bible, as you're reading uh, chapters 1, 2, 3, there's a book in the Bible that exalts women. And then all of a sudden, the women are gone, and Boaz and Obed become the hero of the final story. And they're like, ah, we were almost there, you know, almost. Seems like a man wins the day. Well, in a way he does. But it's not because he's a man it's because he's a son. You see, a son, and it's interesting, this son is just born. It's an infant. It's a little crying baby. I mean, there are many, several babies in here. I mean, how many of us say, oh, the hope. This is our kinsman redeemer, this little bitty baby. I mean, it's not his strength. It's not the fact that he's, a, you know, a, a boy. It's his place. And his place is, is one of power for the weak. You see, there were no 40K plans. There was no Social Security. There was no Medicare or Medicaid. There was nothing but a son. This book is extremely liberating um, and, and radical in terms of uh, God's view of gender and, and women. Because we, we read that um, when Boaz goes to the city gate, he talks about Naomi having some land for sale. Well, women couldn't, couldn't own land. And yet it's interesting that, I mean, in this ancient culture, I, I'm surprised that it's not even being brought up here. I mean, that the guys at the gate didn't say, maybe they just said, oh, well, we know what he means. Because we know, I mean, everybody knows that women can't own land. But here, what we see is that the Redeemer is not Boaz anymore, but the Redeemer is Obed, the son. Look. Then the women said to Naomi, verse 14, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Who's the Redeemer? And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The Redeemer is the baby. Why? Because of his place. This is beautiful. You see, we too must look to a son to redeem us. As sin and as evil oppress us, as we have no hope for the future on our own, we need a son. And we don't just need any son, but we need a, an Obed. Obed in Hebrew means servant. This was a servant son. So how did the city know that he was going to be a blessing to Naomi? Because this is Ruth's son. It's precisely that, because it would be Ruth's son. And Ruth would raise him to be kind and good. She would raise him to think like a redeemer. One who is redeemed and who would redeem. 
And therefore, he would be raised up and he would take care of his frail and fragile grandmother, Naomi. You see, the truly godly, those in positions of power, a son uses his power, uses his status, uses his place for the good of the weak and the wounded. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The land can finally be ours. Forgiveness and grace and all of the promises of the Scriptures can now be ours. Why? Because a son has been born and only the Son of God has the right to dispense His wealth to us. He is our inheritance. He is our King. He is our Savior. And He should be called Wonderful Counselor. He won't be this ogre. He'll be a mighty God, an everlasting Father, a Prince of what? Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this. Dear friends, do you live believing that you have a kinsman redeemer, that you have a son who was given for you that you might be bought and you might live a life of freedom and joy? That you might live as if you are legally... You legally have a right to the forgiveness of sins, to the resurrection of the body, to the life everlasting, because Jesus the Son was born for you and me. That is why we should stand here and sing as loud as we possibly can that indeed we were bought with the price, that indeed we were ransomed, we were redeemed, we were restored, we were forgiven. Why? Because a son was given. Do you love that Son? See, why is the Redeemer, why is this Son, why is He the answer to everything? Dan Allender in his book, How Children Raise Parents, said that there are two things that children look to or look for from day one. There are two questions that they're asking. And these are the questions. Number one, and it's in this order, do my parents love me? Do you know what children are asking with every action they take? Do my parents love me? And then secondly, will my parents let me have whatever I want? The answer to the first better be yes, and the answer to the second better be no. You see, we can't live without love. That's why all of us in this room are twisted to some degree because of the lack of love and the opposite of love that we've received. And that's why the Son is such great hope. Because He has redeemed us by adopting us as sons and daughters. And then thirdly and finally, God will redeem your story and mine. Well, you know, most of us stop reading at verse 17. Uh, eh, maybe... Seventeen and a half, seventeen and three fourths. But as soon as we get into, well, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Oh wow! All right, skip all that. I mean, yeah, whatever. 
I mean, the book of Ruth seems like every love story, guy gets girl, girl gets guy, guy redeems girl, they have a baby, live happily ever after. That's not the overarching story. The overarching story is this. God has been reigning over every single detail of Elimelech and their boys and Naomi and Ruth's life. That's it. You see, what what we're getting here is the lineage of the Christ, the lineage of the Messiah, because the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And so as you read this, what what we're seeing here is that back in in chapter 1, 2, and 3, when we were seeing kind of the, um, you know, the the, the tragedy going on, and, you know, Elimelech dies, and then you just have Naomi with her two sons, and those two sons die, and then then you're down to Naomi and and Ruth and Orpah, and then Orpah takes off for Moab, and so now all you have is Naomi and a Moabite daughter-in-law. And the question is this, oh my, let's feel so bad for Naomi and and Ruth. No. The question is this, how's God going to get himself out of this one? Because they're the last remaining ones. If his promises are going to hold true, if the Messiah is going to come from the line of David, then how in the... I mean... Nobody would have predicted the end of the story that Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, some far relative, far off relative kinsman redeemer, would actually redeem Ruth before the field hands raped and killed her. I mean, it's it's crazy. There was no hope. And so here's the story. Let me before I give you the punchline, let me give you this line. Do you understand that Naomi and Ruth still had broken hearts because of the loss of their lives? Let's not wax over that. Some good things are happening, some incredible redemptive things are happening at the end, but Naomi still lost her husband and her two sons and she'll never be the same this side of heaven. Do you hear me? Ruth is not glossing over this. Excuse me, yeah, the book of Ruth is not glossing over this. Ruth lost her husband and her father-in-law. And she said goodbye to her land and her mother and father. There's so much brokenness in the story. And it's not like, oh, now everything's great and we won't think about it. They still think about it every day. But here's the reality. The hope that God is reigning over the mess and the pain and the hurt of my life and He is moving everything in my life toward good purpose. Through the tears, through the pain, on the anniversary of the death of the, the father and of the husband and the sons, but God reigns, but my God reigns, but my God does nothing randomly. My God is in control and He is moving everything in a good direction and I can trust that. Even though I don't feel that right now, I can trust that. So dear friends, are you at that point of the story where you're wondering, God, how are you going to get out of this? Because you told me that you're faithful. You told me that you're good. You've told me that your love will never let me go. And yet I feel isolated and alone. I'm unmarried or I don't have children. Or I'm married and I was worse off. I'm worse off now than I was when I was... Whatever it is. Where's my job, oh God? 
Where are the desires of my heart being fulfilled? You see, you are in the middle of the story, but it's not the end. It's not finished. Do you see the beautiful reality of that? Take hold of God that, hey, God is not finished. Because He sent a Son to redeem us. And we have been bought with the price. And we're not our own. And our God will leverage everything that He owns for the good of us, His people. And even when it doesn't feel like it, His love has not let us go. So fall into His arms, friends. If you don't know Jesus, I don't know how you live through the tough times. I really don't. I mean, some people think, well, if you believe in a good God and you have bad times, how can you, how can you justify? You can justify those two pretty simply by a pretty cursory view of reading the Bible. Almost nothing works out in the lives of God's people, but God never abandons them. <laughs> and the God is reigning over it, and God will take them home. And dear friends, the same is true for us. One day, someday, God will take us home, and this will be a distant memory. And the story will finally be written. The last chapter will be done. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have hope. Thank you so much for giving us this book of Ruth. Thank you, O oh God, for how kind you are to us and showing us the the story of redemption and the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Oh, Father, how kind you are. So, God, I pray now that we would go and we would sink our faith deep in the reality of our redemption, that we might become redeemers, that we might pull someone else in, pull someone else along, give someone else hope because we know how to be redeemed, how to be bought. We know that there is a, a benevolent landowner, one who owns the universe, one who rules over the universe, and he's not just being kind to us, but he'll be kind to them too. Oh God, would you fuel our faith with this book? And would you move us out to serve you better, to live for you better, to embrace your grace and your mercy better? And Father, I lift this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.